Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Good to see you again. It's been a while since we did our joint podcast together. The last one I did with Professor Chris Gray about his Brexit book has proven to be our second most popular. It's well up there in the charts. We are still number one in the business podcast league tables for Apple Ireland, which is great. So thanks to all our viewers. So let's crack on with the day. One of the things that I know has happened in the last few hours, actually, is that Ireland has announced some more COVID news. Delay of releasing restrictions is probably the best way to put it. Perhaps you'd fill us in on the details, Jim. What's been going on? Okay, Chris. um, Good afternoon. Um, Enjoyed the interview with Chris Gray last week. Uh, Fascinating stuff. For the last 18 months, our government, well, more particularly um, NEFET, the National Public Health Emergency Team, have been telling us that they had two objectives. One was to protect the old and the vulnerable and secondly, to get hospitalization levels down. And um, clearly, the old and vulnerable have all been vaccinated at this stage. Um, And we also have seen the hospitalization level falling very, very dramatically. So we have basically achieved those targets. And one would have thought that when those targets were achieved, that we'd be talking about um, a more rapid opening up of the economy. But uh, that is not the case. Uh, Neffet briefed the cabinet yesterday on its latest modelling and it presented a very, very negative um, forecast for the impact that the Delta variant would have on infection rates, on deaths, on hospitalizations, and particularly on intensive care unit uh, usage over the coming months. 
um, if we reopen the economy. So as a consequence of that, um, the government, as usual, has acceded to what NEFET is recommending. And um, in fact, I thought it was a little bit ironic that actually the Taoiseach delivered the message today at lunchtime rather than the CMO. I would have thought that would be more appropriate, given that he is the one who is clearly driving government policy in this regard at the moment. But anyway, uh, indoor dining has been pushed out further. Uh, There is a suggestion about allowing people with double vaccination into restaurants and pubs and nobody else. Uh, The government, and I heard the Minister for Health being questioned about this on radio at lunchtime, um, he clearly hasn't a clue as to how this might work. And his basic answer was that this wasn't part of government policy um, until last night. It's, it's, it's quite extraordinary, the lack of planning that's going into this whole shambles. Uh, but be that as it may, the indoor dining is being pushed further down the road. I have to say, from the perspective of the owners of restaurants, pubs and hospitality businesses, I feel really, really sorry at, at the moment. I, I suppose I feel even more sorry for ourselves, given that we have all this crap about holding at home and about um, an outdoor summer, etc., etc., Uh, But it's not clear how we can even even deliver that at this stage. So I find today a pretty depressing day, really, in the context of what our public health people are actually driving at the moment. And as I say, the fact that we have achieved what was set out for us to achieve. And yes, now the rules are changing. And the modelling that has been done by NEFET, the details of which Um, have certainly not been put into the public realm. Um, I suspect it's a case of not letting the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, They want an answer and they used a model to come up with that answer. Um, In my view, it has no credence whatsoever. Um, I look at the European Championships at the moment and obviously we had two absolutely fantastic games yesterday which would renew one's faith in football. But on Sunday, I was watching a hurling match in Thurles between my native Waterford and Clare in an empty stadium. Well, sorry, 200 people in a 50,000-seater stadium. Absolutely no atmosphere. It was really depressing to watch. And notwithstanding the fact that Waterford didn't show up on the day, I just couldn't take it. So I switched over to watch the Netherlands play football, which was much more enjoyable. So it's quite extraordinary that Ireland is the only country now in Europe that does not allow indoor dining. Um, We lost our hosting of some of the European Championship games because we wouldn't allow crowds in. And yet you look at all the stadia around Europe um, with varying levels of fullness. And you just ask the question, you know, what do we know here in this country that everybody else doesn't? Um, I think there is an incredible level of arrogance here from Neffet. Um, They seem to believe that they have the answer to all of these questions and that um, everybody else is wrong. Yeah, I must say I picked up on the lack of any planning for a vaccination certificate. I had to read it two or three times, actually. I'm the first critic of a lot of what the British government has done with respect to all sorts of things, not just COVID. But I've been the proud possessor of a very official looking document that attests to my double vaccination for quite a number of weeks now. It's available both in hard copy and digital in in England and now in Wales. 
And so we're, we're good to go with this. And the British government today is talking about putting in plans place for later on in the summer, allowing people back from places like France and Spain who have been doubly vaccinated. It's logistically difficult to do when it comes to cross-border stuff, but not impossible. They're going to try and do it. It creates havoc for families, of course, because children um, typically will not be vaccinated. And so they will have to produce PCR tests, again, adding to the cost and logistical hassles of any trips abroad. So so it's it's tricky. But the lack of planning, um, given that we've been talking about digital and other forms of vaccination passports for months now, is quite striking. And I agree with your comments there. But Jim, uh, the situation here in the UK with respect to the Delta variant is grim. There were 23,000 cases only yesterday. We'll get some more figures later today. Hopefully they won't be as bad. But the big increase, even in one day, let alone one week, is suggestive of anything up to 60% weekly growth in cases. The situation in the UK is that hospitalizations and deaths have not spiked in the way that cases have. So there is considerable hope that the link has been at least weakened between getting this horrible disease and hospitalizations and deaths. But there has been an increase in hospitalizations, and it has to be said, although not not yet one that threatens to overwhelm the health service. And the fear is, of course, is that it will. The scientists will say, we just don't know at this stage. There is a a hope and maybe a belief in that the double vaccination thing will work. And then we hear continuously about the race between vaccinations and the virus. But um, it's looking grim from a case number point of view here in the UK. And as we spoke about some time ago, it's coming your way, whether it's you in Ireland or in France, where today they, I think they announced that 20% of their new cases, although the, the numbers are very low, 20% of that low number is the Delta variant. If this thing progresses in other countries in the way that it has done in the UK, unfortunately, it looks like you might be four, five, six weeks behind us, in which case your, your, your graphs for cases at least are going to look horrible. So that's what uh, I suspect Neffet is basing its modelling on, is what's what's happened here. One of the things that isn't spoken about, actually, is that, of course, this used to be called the India variant. And it's interesting to call up the data on what's actually happening in India. And without much vaccination and without much social distancing or other form of restriction, their cases have collapsed. Their per capita case numbers are actually well below the UK's now. And and that's one of the many mysteries of COVID. It, it looks to have mysteriously abated somewhat in India. And that notwithstanding the quality of their data, their lack of testing, etc., it does look as if the disease has come down a lot in India. So that holds out some hope. The curious thing amidst all of that is, of course, the UK announced this week that uh, on July the 19th, we're going to have a full, complete reopening. At least that's the plan. So it looks to me as if they've decided that that link between the virus and hospitalizations has been weakened sufficiently that they can reopen. And that they've made that decision, fateful or otherwise, that they're going to live with COVID. Singapore has has announced this week that it's reached a similar decision. So lots of different countries, lots of different strategies. I sense from what you're saying is that you think that Ireland should take the same risk that the UK is going to take in two to three weeks time and fully open up. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yes, it would. Absolutely. Um, Obviously, in as safe a way as possible. But before I answer that question, Chris, are are you saying 
that you believe the Irish government strategy and Neffet strategy is the correct one, and that no, my sense it, of criticism. What I said was that I understood, at least I think I can understand where they're coming from. Is that if you look at the UK case numbers and take that as your guide, you're going to be horrified, and you're going to say there's massive trouble ahead if this is any guide. In Scotland, for example, they have the worst COVID rates that they've had since the very start of the pandemic. That's how rampant it is up there. And um, that, that's an extraordinary little piece of statistical data that, that, that um, I don't think has received enough attention. So I'm not suggesting for a second that the Neffet strategy was the correct one or the one that I would advise. All I'm saying is, is that when I'm trying to puzzle my way through this, think my way through the data, uh, as I look at the data very closely as I do, I can point to the fact that deaths are very low in the UK still. Hospitalizations have ticked up but is still quite low, all things considered, um, and say that if that's what your focus is on, you're going to, and then you decide to open up, you're betting, you're gambling, if you like, that the rising case numbers, which strikes me as being inevitable for Ireland, because we've had got it here in the UK, and case numbers are going to rise further, we know that, or at least we're pretty sure of that. One must always be careful about claiming what one knows here. And that, 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 uh, an explicit decision to live with COVID is, is taken. And so it, it's really trying to tease out that discussion. You think that that risk is worth taking. As you probably know, Jim, my sympathies are with that. We're in this now nearly a year and a half. And the toll on mental health, um, the economy, and so many other things um, strikes me that the balance of risk has shifted somewhat since the start of the pandemic. But I'm not unsympathetic to Neffet's perspective, because as I say, the UK numbers are horrifying. But I am unsympathetic to the politicians who seem to, to seem to take the, na the very narrow focus, the very narrow brief that Neffet has. Because I think even you would agree, Jim, that Neffet's brief is to protect public health. It's not got a brief to protect the economy, for example. It's not got a brief to protect jobs in the hospitality and tourism sectors. But it is the government's brief to protect and look after a much broader remit than Neffet. And it's that link between Neffet's recommendations and government decision-making that I think requires some focus anyway. Yeah, I, I have argued for some time now, Chris, looking at the makeup of Neffet, that there is nobody in there with any business or economic acumen. Um, you correctly say they have been given a mandate to protect public health, um, and, and that's what they're doing. Um, and I think that mandate was way too narrow. Um, I think the composition of NEFET is all wrong because we are looking at a group of people who have permanent jobs in the public sector, who have permanent pensions, who really financially have not suffered as a result of COVID. Whereas if you had people in there who actually understood the impact of these policies on the real economy, on businesses, on self-employed people and so on, um, I, I think they'd be making very different recommendations. But you're correct in saying, you know, Neffet is what, it's, it, what it is. And the real criticism is with the government that actually takes on all of its recommendations, implements them and ignores the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is a very, very serious one. Um, you've mentioned the impact this is going to, is having, sorry, on mental health particularly for younger people, because I certainly would argue at this point in time that this is no country for young people. And I would be recommending to young people at this juncture, they should get the hell out of this country 
um, try and get a life, get a career in another country where they can actually live. By staying here, um, they're in a position where they are subject to all of these restrictions, despite the fact that uh, they're not very vulnerable to COVID um, from a real health perspective. They cannot afford to get on the housing ladder. The suggestion now that only vaccinated people would be allowed into pubs and restaurants effectively rules young people out of engaging in this. So I think there's a real attack here on younger people. I can just sense a growing sense of anger and disillusionment about young people. Um, And then if you compound that, of course, with the housing situation that we're going to talk about a little bit later on in the podcast. But uh, it's a very, very difficult climate out there for young people at the moment. And, And as I say, there have to be incredible attractions for young people to get out of this country build a social life, build a career, and in fact, get to live their life. So there is that element, the impact on young people. There is the fiscal situation. Um, The National Economic Dialogue has started in Ireland yesterday. This is a forum where a lot of um, interest groups come together with policymakers to look at the budgetary parameters for the 2022 budget, which will be presented in October. Uh, but we had comments from the Taoiseach and the Minister for Finance that the current expenditure trajectory is not sustainable and that it would have to be rolled back. Well, you know, big deal. They're stating the bleeding obvious. You know, if you keep an economy shut down as they have done, and let's not forget Ireland is the country in the European Union that has been subjected on a consistent basis over the last 17 or 18 months to the highest level of restriction of any other country. So if you have that sort of um, economic lockdown, um, you know, the cost to the real economy are going to be phenomenal. Um, The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, was suggesting uh, so far the cost is about 38 billion euro. Okay, in direct supports for the economy as a result of COVID. Um, That is a hell of a lot of money and it it leaves a massive, massive hole in our public finances. And by the end of this year, they're projecting that our debt will reach about 239 billion euro. Okay, huge number um, in absolute terms, bigger than we've ever had in our history. So. The implications of that into the future will be that there's going to be a serious lack of funding available for health, for education. So I can see health professionals coming out in the next few years complaining about the lack of funding for the health service and justifiably so. But they need to think back on their actions at this stage um, in terms of locking down the economy. It is contributing to this. You know, you cannot isolate the two. So I think the implications of a restrictive lockdown for the public finances and for the longer term funding of public services in this country will be very, very significant because I just don't buy um, the the theory that, you know, a country can just borrow forever, that it's, it's, it's irrelevant. You can say that for the States, but you certainly can't say it for a small open economy like Ireland. So uh, that that's that's my point, Chris. I think the long term implications, if, if a proper cost benefit analysis was carried out, um, I find it very hard to defend the policies being suggested by NEFET and pursued by government. I can understand them, but I cannot justify it for one moment yeah, in my I, mind. I, I hear what you're saying, Jim, that 
I'm not here to argue Neffet's case at all, but they presumably would say that in the long run, if the if reopening the economy simply allows this disease to run again and the health service is overwhelmed again, uh, that's the point at which we would have to lock down again. And that's the situation here in the UK. Both governments have used the same form of words in the last 48 hours, actually, that the next unlocking, when it comes, has to be the last. It has to be irreversible. And Neffert would say, I, again, I would guess, that you just can't promise that, that if this disease or some new variant comes along that overwhelms your health service again, then you are going to have to lock down again. And that's the, that's the problem that they face. And I think that um, an honest, I think you're being very honest. I think that you're being you're being quite clear in what you're saying, which is that you you think that we need the time has come. And um, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth. The time has come to live with this disease, to bet that the double vaccination is going to work, and we're going to get enough people vaccinated o- over the, the rest of the rest of the summer, if not the rest of the year. The deaths and hospitalizations fall to a a manageable level from a health service perspective that is not overwhelmed and from a societal level that just like road deaths or flu deaths or other forms of illness and and fatalities that result from all sorts of societal activities and health outcomes and run at what we horribly call uh, an acceptable level. I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, very, very much so, Chris. Absolutely. One, one of the interesting points that was made, and this is going off topic a little bit, but one of the interesting points that was made by the Minister of Finance yesterday, and indeed the Taoiseach, was that the supportive policies of the European Commission and the European Central Bank will not last. So in other words, at some stage, the European Central Bank will start to tighten monetary policy, um, and the European Commission, Commission, excuse me, will revert back to um, the old fiscal orthodoxy, and they are arguing here that you know we need to prepare for that eventuality and make sure we rein in spending at this juncture. But that's just not going to be possible if they continue to push ahead with a policy of serious restrictions on the economy. And it's also, I think, interesting in that context that. Um, we have German elections in September, on the 25th of September. Um, the finance minister in Germany, Olaf Scholz, who will be the Social Democrat, the SDP's candidate for the chancellorship, he has dismissed calls for reform of German and EU fiscal rules. And he's arguing that they do provide enough flexibility to overcome crisis, crises such as the pandemic. Um, and what what that means from an Irish perspective, and it feeds into this whole COVID narrative, is that at some stage, the European Commission is going to roll back on its lax attitude towards the fiscal rules, that the fiscal rules will be reimposed at some stage, or at least that's what he would like to see happening. And after all, if he, if he were to become chancellor, he would be the most powerful politician in Europe, so he can push these things. Uh, but we could be returning to an era of significant fiscal austerity to get us back within the fiscal rules. So you cannot have it every way. You know, you lock, you keep the economy locked down to varying degrees. Uh, it has significant implications for economic activity and the public finances. And then that in turn could create serious problems for us in the event of the European Commission returning to uh, the old fashioned and in my view, 
outdated fiscal orthodoxy. Uh, but if, if, yeah. if we do have a return to that fiscal orthodoxy, um, it's going to be the mother of all fiscal contractions. Because if you think about the fiscal stimulus or the amount that's been added to the economy by all the pandemic employment assistance and all the other expenditures and tax measures that have been taken to assist with the lockdown, if you're still in lockdown, I think this is what you're saying, Jim, if, you, if you're still in some form of lockdown, when via some kind of European edict or just the markets or yourselves, you decide that you have to start withdrawing all of that support. Not only is the economy restricted, but it's then being deflated by government policy. Then certainly from an economic perspective, you're in serious trouble. And whichever way you go with this, is this is we know with certainty that there is a massive fiscal tightening coming because these supports will have to be ended one day. As you say, they cannot be permanent um, by definition. This cannot last forever. We don't know how long they can last, but we know they can't last forever. So in our future lies a massive fiscal tightening. If you you talked about comments being made by some German um, fiscal, potential fiscal authorities, the German head of the Bundesbank has been warning about monetary policy, saying that the ECB's monetary support can't last forever. Again, he's stating the obvious but he clearly is firing a warning shot to say that he'd rather to see them ended sooner rather than later. And so there's a huge monetary debate going on. And if they make the mistake this t- after this crisis, just as they made the same mistake after the great financial crisis of tightening too soon, that too will have obvious consequences, not least for interest rates. One suspects that they will be higher with all of the implications that that has. So I think you can be very worried about European economic policy going forward in that the the mood music is definitely shifting towards tightening. And that's a big, big concern. And and, And that has to be part of the holistic COVID policy calculus that the government does. It's not part of what NEFIT does. We've both agreed that. But the government has to take this sort of thing, as well as all the other factors that we've talked about, into account. And I think I'm beginning to agree with you, but with the caveats that I've mentioned, that it is risky, that you have to start getting the economy back to something normal and taking the risks that the the disease incidence means horribly an acceptable level of illness and death. But you also have to be honest and say that we know that that's a gamble and we hope and pray that it will work. But we know that if it doesn't work, we know how that ends up. And where this ends up will be more lockdowns and, frankly, more economic catastrophe. And on the economics, we know that some of these effects are permanent. Here in the UK, they're finding it difficult to hire hospitality workers. And hospitality is almost fully open, not quite, but we can certainly dine indoors, albeit with reduced capacity indoors. You can still get a table inside a pub and a restaurant. You won't get one now for the England-Germany game because that's all they're all booked up. But 300,000 workers have disappeared from that industry. We don't know whether they're sitting in their parents' basement somewhere else in the UK or whether they're EU workers who've gone home. Either way, we're beginning to think that both groups, particularly those workers that have gone back to the EU, aren't coming back, not least because if they are have gone back to their respective EU countries, they can't come back having left because of Brexit. So that's just one small example of the pandemic likely to have a very permanent or long-lasting 
economic consequence. And I think that we need to start thinking about all the other longer term economic consequences of the pandemic. And again, that's the role of government to factor these into their holistic thinking. And NEFET is just a very narrow focus. The government's remit is much, much broader. And again, I think that's the right way to, crit- to criticize them. But moving, moving the discussion on, Jim, one of the things that is connected to what you were saying about young people, and you had some very strong remarks about recommendations for young people, is housing affordability. In the UK this week, we've had on the nationwide house price index, the strongest growth in year over year prices, house prices, since 2004. Now, there are lots of reasons for that. And again, we're not sure whether they're temporary or permanent, but the fastest house price growth in 14 years is something real. It's in the figures. House prices are leaping up in the UK by double digit percentage gains. And that just makes the housing problem for this younger generation about which we are so worried and makes their housing crisis even worse. I I don't think the numbers are quite as bad in Ireland, but I know there's a housing boom going on in places like the United States, Canada, and elsewhere. It does seem to be a global phenomenon. Yeah, it it is pretty bad here, Chris, because we we get a number of different sources of house price data, uh, one being the CSO, and that's showing year-on-year inflation running at around 4.5%. However, um, yesterday, myhome.ie and daft.ie both simultaneously produced housing market reports and show that house prices nationally have increased by 13% over the past year. And we've seen growth of 20% in some parts of the country, uh, such as my native Waterford, for example. So uh, this is just exacerbating the, the whole housing crisis for young people that they are the real losers in this because as you know, and it probably always puzzled you a little bit, but it is really built into the psyche of us Irish. The first thing we want to do when we get a job is to buy a house. So there is a huge home ownership culture. I'm not saying all um, young people have that. I mean, my one of my sons, for example, would have zero interest in owning a house because he would regard it um, as a sort of a millstone around your neck for the rest of your life. Uh, but be that as it may, there there is an incredibly strong uh, desire to own housing in this country. And quite simply for young people, they are now totally priced out of the market. And unfortunately, it is not just priced out in terms of owner occupier. They want to buy a house. They're also being priced out of the rental market. So there's a serious housing crisis for young people. And it just does compound um, the impact that COVID-19 has had and is having on young people and will continue to have based on what NEFET is recommending and which the government is acceding to at this point. Um, and unfortunately, um, I just don't see the housing crisis being addressed in a meaningful way in this country. Um, we have an incredible difficulty in get housing supply coming on stream. We have, um, I think it's something like 3,000 houses at the moment are under judicial review. In other words, planning has been turned down and there's now, or maybe been granted depending on the situation, but there's a judicial review going on challenging the decision that has been taken. So all of that is delaying the delivery of housing supply. So we're talking about it, we're huffing and puffing about it, we're not addressing it uh, because we're way too focused on the unidimensional issue called COVID-19 and and that I think sort of 
I would reaffirms my whole view here that this tunnel vision focus on COVID nineteen, um, ignoring all of the other problems in our economy and society, um, I think is a very faulty strategy, and the consequences will be with us for years to come. And I, I genuinely mean it when I said earlier that if I was giving advice to a young person at the moment, I'd be telling them that they should consider getting out of the country to get a decent job, uh, to have the possibility of having someplace decent to live, and more importantly, to get the possibility of living a life free from the Stasi-like attitude we have in this country towards young people enjoying themselves. Well, they could certainly come here, I think, under the rules and probably get a job. They could probably get a job in hospitality, actually, given the, the job pressures there. But they'd have exactly the same problem when it comes to housing. And they would have exactly the same problem when it comes to house prices if they go to Canada or the United States or Australia. And so this is this is a global problem. Historically, we've always looked for societal problems when we have different classes of society. The French Revolution arguably was caused by the aristocracy ignoring the needs of the poorer classes and Marie Antoinette's famous let them eat cake type remarks. Uh, the thing that worries me about what you're saying is that I think we're setting up an intergenerational conflict, that the way in which we essentially have screwed the uh, younger generation. Our generation has pulled the ladder up behind us when it comes to housing, when it comes to pensions, when it comes to well-paid, secure jobs. We're bequeathing very little of that to our children. And I think that sets up the potential, the risk of real societal problems in a number of jurisdictions going forward. And again, it's the government's job to consider the consequences of that. Us older people in our pensions, we own equities, for example, whether or not we're managing our own pensions. If you have a pension, Jim, as you well know, you um, are doing very well at the moment um, because the US stock market, as we speak, it is an all-time high. That probably is the kiss of death for it. Um, And that's not unconnected to the pandemic. But young people, they don't have stakes in the stock market via their pensions or their savings. And again, it's another way in which we're pulling the ladder up behind us. Uh, If you think as a young person that you're going to be retiring at 66, 67, whatever the retirement age is at the moment, in whatever jurisdiction you have, and you're going to have a decent pension, forget about it, because the money just isn't going to be there by the time you hit our sorts of ages. And, And that's just simple, simple arithmetic. So on that cheerful note, Jim, I think we should probably call it a day there, unless you want to say something, uh, say a few words at the end. Uh, no, no, Chris, I mean, I on that pension issue, I mean, if you think about when we started work, well, I started work in Ireland, you start in the UK, but we were going into a situation where we were most likely in a defined benefit pension situation. So we were guaranteed a pension a certain pension, you know, regardless of how stock markets behaved. Um, And we had something that never appealed to me very much, but we had security of employment. I mean, we could conceivably get our job at 22 or 23 and stay there for the rest of your life, uh, be guaranteed and get a pension. Uh, That never appealed to me, but that option is not there now for most young people. Um, You know, they're in precarious employment, 
uh, they, they're not provided with pensions. And of course, here we have the government again huffing and puffing in recent years about the delivery of some type of mandatory pension situation, which they have a total inability or unwillingness to do. So, you know, it, it just does feed into that whole narrative. But I think I better shut up there before um, I depress myself, you and our listeners so yeah, um, yeah, that, that's quite a depressing vista, I think, that we've both painted. So I think it behoves us next time around to to look for um, silver linings in some of the clouds that are too obviously identified, which I suspect will be quite a challenge. But let's give it a go. So thanks very much, Jim. And um, let's let's look forward to the next slightly more optimistic podcast. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.